and welcome to ATARC's Thursday After Lunch IT webinar series. Today, we will be discussing ways to strengthen the data sharing methodologies in various cloud environments. This panel will examine the current challenges, recent successes, and lessons learned by federal IT government leaders within the cloud space. You will also hear how they are working to manage and protect their data within cloud systems. My name is Kirsten Patton, and I am the Working Group Program Manager here at ATARC, and I have the pleasure of moderating today's panel. I want to welcome all of our attendees, and special thanks to Marie Hill, Steve Gruwal, and the rest of the Cohesity team. This afternoon, we are going to hear from our panelists, followed by a Q&A, where we will pop in a few polls and answer your questions. Before we begin, I just want to encourage the audience to please submit those questions throughout our webinar in the Q&A section of this platform. We'll be going through them during and after the panel. So please send them as you go. At this time, I would like to ask our panelists to please turn on their cameras and come on on. And um, why don't you go ahead and unmute yourselves as well. So I'm gonna briefly run through who we have on our panel today. Go ahead and just give a little wave to the camera when I say your name. First up, we have Tom Kenny. He is the Chief Data Officer, Director of SOFAI, um, U.S. Special Operations Command. We also have Paul Puckett, who is the Director, ECMO, CIO G6 over at the U.S. Army. We also have Dan Pomeroy on our panel. He is the Deputy Associate Administrator over at GSA. We also have Rob Brown, the CTO at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. We also have George Strother, who is the Branch Chief of Storage Management, Office of the Chief Information Officer within Digital Infrastructure Services over at USDA. And we also have Steve Gruwal, who is the CTO of Federal over at Cohesity. So this is going to be an awesome panel. Really excited to dive into it. How about we go ahead and um, to kick us off, let's have our panelists please give a little bit more background, um, share with us type of projects that you're working on right now, and any other insight that you think the audience may um, be interested in hearing. So first off, can we hear from Tom, please? Thanks for having us, Kirsten. It's great being a part of this panel, especially with the folks that are on the panel. New friends and old friends are great to chat about these things with. At Special Operations Command, one of the things that we're really pushing the needle on when it, we talk about data, we talk about cloud, really is the enablement of artificial intelligence across our command. You know, our Commander General Clark has really talked about being the first AI-enabled combatant command inside of the DOD, and we're pushing a lot in that direction. For us, when we think about data and cloud capabilities and our workforce, a lot of what we're looking at today is about enablement. How do we develop the capabilities, not at a headquarters level, but organically throughout the SOCOM organization so that we can get the best ideas bubbling up to the top, being able to create capabilities to realize that AI-enabled combatant command. There's a lot of nuance in that. There's a lot of opportunity in that. But where we're really focused are how do we bring all these different technologies together in a very technology-forward mindset that understands we've really got to get after three things for us. One is the mindset, understanding why we need to go where we need to go. The second is the skill set, making sure that we have people on board that can actually make this happen. And then finally, the tool set. What are those cloud computing capabilities that we need? Hybrid cloud, private clouds, public clouds. What do we need to be using for the right use cases across the board? So again, thanks for having me. Excited to hear what the rest of the panel has to say this morning. Excellent, thanks so much. And next up, I'd like to hear from Paul. Uh, hey there, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. 
Um, so kind of building on what, what Tom said, the Army believes that uh, cloud computing is foundational to our ability to uh, capture the benefits of machine learning and artificial intelligence. We see uh, the ability to tap into on-demand compute and storage uh, when it comes to the rate of uh, data that we are creating today is really our own me only means to really tap into then uh, machine learning to start to kind of learn for us and then artificial intelligence to help us make better decisions uh, at the speed of relevance. Uh, so the Army stood up the uh, Enterprise Cloud Management Office uh, to drive and accelerate uh, the adoption of cloud computing to deliver on those principles. Uh, we see data as the ammunition of the current fight. A lot of people said the future fight, but really this is the fight that we're in right now. Uh, and so we need the ability to uh, harness that technology and that capability, see our data better, see ourselves better uh, so that we can act upon it in real time. Uh, and we think that the ability to, to share information globally uh, is really that we, the challenge that we have uh, in front of us. If we look at kind of legacy technology and proprietary ways of storing and managing data, uh, we've got to start to unlock that and come to a more uh, open architecture and uh, more exposure, exposure of our, our interfaces for how we exchange data in real time uh, if we want to enable this uh, future vision uh, for joint all, domations, uh, joint all domain operations and uh, command and control. Excellent, thank you. Over to Dan next. Hi, yeah, we've um, really been thinking about the collaboration component of the topic today. We've spent a considerable amount of time working under the leadership and direction of the Federal CIO Council to help break down the barriers that we have between interagency collaboration, uh, particularly in a post-COVID world our ability to effectively collaborate beyond our own organizational silo, that, that need has really um, presented itself as, as a major area of concern. And we've seen agencies run into institutional barriers that, that hinder interagency collaboration. And a lot of these policy infrastructures that they're running up against are, are for a, a pre-cloud, pre-COVID world. For instance, if every time we wanted to have a video call, if we needed to have a NIST 847 interagency connectivity agreement, it would grind us to a halt. And yet we still see in agencies, in some cases, some certain agencies are, are finding barriers along those lines. Um, so we're working with the CIO Council to come up with um, configuration guidance on collaboration to come up with various pilots that are happening um, simultaneously, capturing those lessons learned, um, helping agencies improve how they how we can work together through whitelisting FedRAMP to prove cloud technologies that are currently being blocked between agencies. A lot of what we're doing is the basics, you know, basic collaboration, basic video collaboration, basic document collaboration. But here we are in a post-COVID world, and that was a um, that was not a top priority in years past, and it has come to the forefront of what what we're working on right now. Excellent, thank you. And over to Rob. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, good afternoon. Rob Brown, um, USCIS uh, Chief Technology Officer. Um, some of the work that we've been doing here um, really is focused on, I guess, taking the next leap or step forward and trying to really democratize data. Um, we've done, I think, a pretty decent job. We still have some work to go in, 
in connecting the majority of our sources and a change data capture method and dumping them into a data lake as well as pseudo data mesh. Um, now, you know, as more and more folks are jumping on the, the bandwagon of data engineering and data scientists, feel we need to take a technology leap forward. And we've been investigating certain technologies that allow essentially, let's call it citizen development or citizen data engineering, data science um, for the actual business users that really have the questions that need to be answered. So empowering those folks to have direct access to the data so that they, you know, they don't need to have a degree in computer science or understand SQL queries uh, they have the right UIs, the right access to the data that is important to them to start to make meaningful decisions. So we, we really started to experiment with that. And it's been a definitely a journey in just adopting certain tools, set, setting certain mindsets, spent a lot of time essentially in reducing a lot of what we call locally developed apps, which for really a lack of a better term were just sort of applications that may sit under somebody's desk or on their, their laptop or, or desktop. Uh, where they've created even access databases to generate reports, do some simple data crunching. So we're trying to expose all that data, capture all that data so it can be leveraged across the enterprise. Some other areas uh, where we're working on is, is taking sort of the AI ML ops and truly starting to do version control and pipelining of the algorithm development and reuse that those algorithms um, so we can avoid a lot of the redundancy that exists today. Um, again, opening it up with uh, events, opening up with uh, APIs, so that again, we can, we can open this up, not just to the, our internal folks, internal development teams, but working towards a phased approach to opening up with our sister DHS agency, our components um, like ICE and CBP. Excellent, thank you. I would like to hear from George next. Yeah, thanks, uh, it's good to be here. Um, so I'm part of a subcomponent of USDA um, called DISC or Digital Infrastructure Services Center. Um, and so we've, we've hosted our own data centers for many, many, many years. Um, so we offer services and support within our data centers, but also across the clouds. Um, and similar to what Rob highlighted, some of our, our increased commercial cloud consumption has really made us challenge some of those legacy processes. Um, and relook at some of the technologies that we're, we're using. Um, a lot of the business processes that consume those different technologies are changing and updating. Um, and it's not reliant anymore on on-prem or specific technologies. Um, highlighting something that Tom said about collaboration within subcomponents, um, we found that, that that can really be helped across the organization as a whole. Um, and some of the collaboration and online meeting and, and video chat technologies have really helped us um, operate across different subcomponents of USDA, um, as well as with non-USDA components to, to find kind of better ways to solution um, and then consume commercial cloud. Um, so we, we've also seen as commercial cloud adoption increases uh, across the federal government as a whole, not just within USDA, we're finding new ways to collaborate and then share data um, with, with partners such as USGS and FEMA, um, and even with consumers directly that um, were either challenging or, or a hindrance to us when we were just looking at kind of on-prem or, or legacy data center technologies. Thanks. Excellent, thank you. And last but not least, Steve. 
Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, Steve Graywall, serve as the federal CTO at Cohesity. I cover the overall federal portfolio, including the IC, DOD, and CIV. Uh, prior to joining Cohesity, I had 16 years in government and a variety of leadership roles across four agencies, uh, most recently as deputy CIO at the GSA. And uh, our entire mission is to uh, provide a, the most efficient architecture for data management, both technically efficient and financially efficient for the cloud, for on-prem. Uh, I was, of course, you know, very engaged in my former capacity solving some of these tough challenges that we're discussing here today uh, around modernization, around more efficient use of data, uh, and, and you know, recognizing that each department and agency may be in a different uh, state of maturity based on resources, based on skill sets, skill sets et cetera. Uh, our entire fundamental uh, approach and philosophy is to, you know, a software-defined data management platform that gives you the ability to leverage those consumption models, those deployment architectures based on your mission requirements and needs, but in the most efficient manner, as we all agree that data continues to you know, grow at an exponential rate. Excellent, thank you for those insights. So before we dive into our panel discussion, I wanna go ahead and put up a poll question for our audience. So you at home and panelists as well, feel free to answer. And the poll question is, does your cloud strategy include the following, which includes on-prem only, on-prem plus cloud hybrid, more than one cloud instance, such as multi-cloud, or you're not sure. So please go ahead and take a moment to answer this for us. And Alyssa, whenever you feel like we are ready to view the results, we can go ahead and chat about them. So I think we are ready to see them. There we go. So it looks like more than one cloud instance or on-prem is pretty close behind, or I mean, that's ahead, my bad. <laughs> um, so let's talk about that a little bit. And I just wanna open it up with a broader question, which, are, which is what strategies have been put in place in order to strengthen the cloud as the federal government is starting to um, embrace this new normal? So maybe we can hear from Paul first, please. Uh, this is a this is a really interesting question. Uh, I like this. Uh, I'm I'm probably going to break a few hearts with the way that I say this. Um, I think it should depend, and I think a big part of that is if we look at our business processes today and how we share information today, and we try and port that over and say that we're going to overlay that quote within the cloud. I think we're missing a big opportunity. Um, I think the the world of cloud computing is an opportunity, like I said before, for us to be able to tap into on-demand compute and storage, for us to be able to gain insights at speed and scale that uh, we have not been capable of doing on-premise within a data center. That being said is, you know, our mission is global, shared across, you know, all of us. We, we touch kind of every endpoint, if you will, which means that our typical way of moving data and analyzing data and acting upon data has taken this form across data centers where we have, you know, large or small, but dedicated transport for moving all these different copies of things all over the world so people can gain their own insights. And if we move that model to the cloud, we're gonna find that we're, we're taking a step backwards in opportunity. Whereas I can leverage the cloud to be able to process um, data at a speed and at a rate, leveraging algorithms that I can reuse so I can essentially disseminate the insights and not necessarily just the raw data globally. And that is going to take 
a model where perhaps one cloud provider may be great at some key component and another cloud provider is going to have to kind of fit a specific purpose when it comes to your data strategy. And then you're obviously going to have some amount when it comes to the sensitivity of data uh, and on-prem type of architecture that's going to be employed as well. And so I think answering this question for most at scale will find that their data strategy uh, will more than likely dictate a, a multi slash hybrid model. Um, but I think it's one of those things where it depends. So the army uh, has taken a model where we're looking to the cloud to learn, to then be able to tease out the edges of what the right uh, adoption model globally looks like. And we know for a fact, it's going to take uh, a flavor of a hybrid model between commercial cloud and on-premise capabilities, because we see it today as we optimize some of our workflows. Um, and then even with uh, tapping into some of the insights of specific cloud service providers, uh, we're already seeing a, uh, a multi-cloud strategy being employed uh, as well, but it's being driven by uh, the data plan that the Army put out that's getting after what is the most effective and efficient way for me to be able to visualize, access, understand, trust, uh, gain interoperability and security of our data. And so I think your cloud model needs to complement your data strategy, which should be 100% aligned to your mission to drive effectiveness and efficiency from that. Great, thank you for those insights. Do we have any other panelists who want to add on to that? Um, George, you came off mute. Do you want to um, add to that question? Yeah, to, to, to really to strengthen what, what Paul was, was saying, I think across the federal government, we're seeing that a lot. Um, one of the things we've, we've done within USDA is, is really create, um, we call them landing zones across the different cloud providers, as well as our on-prem data centers. Um, as depending on the use case, there's, there's often going to be multiple ways that we, we could solve problems at, at different commercial clouds, but what is the right one for, for customer applications? Um, often there's, there's going to be preconceived notions or, or expectations about what technologies people will be using. Um, and commercial cloud has really challenged that in, in the ways that each, each are implementing different technologies, sometimes on their own. Um, but open standards are really helping a lot of the cloud providers and, and us as, as technologists within our organization um, be able to share that data in kind of open formats or open standards um, across both our agencies, but across the federal government as a whole. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Tom, Dan, or Rob, do you guys have anything to chime in before we move on to the next question? So the, the only thing I would add is to really double down on something that Paul said that George has kind of supported, which is if we think about just doing what we're doing today and just moving it into the cloud from on-prem, we're losing a massive opportunity. And Dan kind of pointed to this a little bit earlier with being in the infancy of just even understanding data sharing agreements. So if you think about a multi-cloud scenario where a purpose-built solution might be best in Google Compute and a second section of your technology might be in AWS. Well, if you run it all in Virginia, there's ways that enterprise customers today in the civilian world can run a multi-gig fiber connection between AWS and Google, and you can share data piece of cake. You try to do that today in the DOD and try to run that data sharing agreement through, and it, it is a conceptual nuance that isn't yet in our vernacular about how to really embrace a multi-cloud strategy to, you know, to what Paul was saying about purpose-built solutions, 
getting the right solution for the right problem we're trying to solve. We also need our agreements. We need our abilities to do our acquisition processes. We need our abilities to support these systems to be completely rethought in order to really take advantage of it. Otherwise, we're just moving one process from one world to another world without really improving it over time. Thank you for sharing that. I had, I had one more quick thing. Just to, thanks, Tom, that was, that was well said. Um, we spent some time in GSA um, within our data center and cloud community of practice, bringing the federal community together and developing a best practices guide that we've posted on Max for feds. It's available there. You can also get it through the community of practice. So um, what we decided to do was to take a broad approach and talk to as many agencies as we could and fit in as many best practices as possible, knowing to what's been said earlier about agencies having different levels of skill sets and familiarity. You know, one of the things that we want to do, because I think your, your question was government wide, you know, sometimes you have to get the water to the furloughs, which is an old farming metaphor. Basically, you got to you got to get to the water to the place where it needs it the most. And so um, usually in areas that are struggling is, is where, you know, we're doing everything we can to push those best practices out. So the federal government collectively has a higher level of skill, has a higher level of sophistication on these matters. Thanks. And Kirsten, I was just gonna <clears throat> add that, you know, to Paul's point, when I wasn't still in government 2009 when the 25.92 reform plan came out, you know, OMB launched the cloud first policy, but I think as you think about the public CSPs, you think about on-prem, off-prem, the tactical edge, it should be a data first uh, mindset and a data first policy to drive those corresponding, uh, you know, uh, you know, delivery models and which, which, what makes the most amount of sense uh, based on your individual mission requirements, based on uh, cybersecurity requirements, based on the processing power and the uh, capabilities that these cloud providers provide. Uh, there's certainly not a one size fits all model, uh, but I think uh, we kind of have overwhelming consensus that it's all about the data and you should really be, the data should be driving those architectures based on consumption and based on uh, end user experience. Excellent, thank you. Um, so another question that I have, and uh, Rob, maybe you can answer this one for us, is in this period of time of building the new normal, um, so similar to before, what emerging technology has led to the strengthening of the federal cloud within your agency? Um, from a tech perspective, we definitely just a lot of cloud management tools have really come to fruition. Uh, not so much brokering, but uh, tools that help enable visibility into the actual processes from synthetic monitoring, APM. So more of the observability bits that I can essentially leverage in one place. Um, other areas is really cost. Uh, so I can be uh, a little bit more corporate. Um, I'm sure all of the folks here, if they're dealing with the delivery and development, you know, some of the worst nightmares are letting devs run loose in a cloud environment because uh, these folks don't shut anything down and it usually is N plus a million. <laughs> so having, having a little bit of uh, hygiene and cloud usage um, uh, that does transcend multiple CSPs has been very important. Um, and then a lot of the automation. So some of the serverless that we find in uh, the various CSPs that you can codify, essentially starting with a strategic policy and then codify it into a sort of a Lambda or serverless script um, to help enforce those, create, the, create whatever action you want 
but then enforce it with uh, scheduling, et cetera. That's also been very powerful. And, and again, just establishing some of the good standards, the good governance across multiple clouds. Um, from a true data perspective, there's been leaps and bounds in just tech over the past, uh, over the past couple of years. And just true good data science uh, platforms, even just data management platforms that would be, you know, to the files and the sort of the commodity stuff to, to really taking full life cycle of, of information, um, data to creating new products. So, and again, um, providing a, a, the performance that is needed for some of the applications that serve our missions. Excellent, thank you for sharing that. Um, we're gonna go ahead and pop up another poll question. So Alyssa, if you could please put that on the screen for us and our audience can answer again. The question is, how important is an as-a-service data management offering to your organization? Uh, rate it one through four. So not important at all, fairly important, important, or very important. And our panelists can go ahead and answer that too. And then we are gonna follow up with a question to discuss the results. So Alyssa, whenever you feel like we are ready to see those results, please share them with us. Very important, it looks like. So I guess that's good news, right? <laughs> um, the question that I have is, how has your agency gone about strengthening data sharing methodologies in various cloud environments? So maybe we can hear from Tom first on this one. So the, the concept of data sharing is one that I think is really evolving inside of the DoD. Historically, I think folks have really thought about a data sharing agreement as, hey, you've got some data over there that I wanna get access to, so I'm gonna copy it all down and I'm gonna keep it in my cloud and I'm gonna run all my data over here. Or I've got data that you want and you're gonna push it over there, which is in concept, you know, a, a decent approach 10 years ago. Today, as we think about these data sharing agreements in multi-cloud environments, it's more about just access to that data, right? I don't necessarily need access to every single piece of data and then copy it all down. Uh, there was a, an engagement that I was in earlier with Dr. Markowitz, who's the CDO of the Army, who was talking about one particular set of data that was replicated hundreds of times across the Army. And I know Paul knows this pain very well about just having multiple copies of data and of even systems in different locations. So as we think about data sharing agreements and we think about using data cross collaboratively, I think there's two areas we really have to focus on with the DOD. The first is we have to make that data discoverable, right? And that's sort of the first principle of Vaultus, which is visible. How do we even know where the data exists? That really ties into an important paradigm that we've got to embrace in the DoD, which is the concept of a data catalog. You know, you don't necessarily even need to see what data is in a database if you can at least see what is supposed to be in that database, the metadata, if you will. And being able to see that metadata and understand what's available where does a couple of things for us from a data sharing agreement. One is it allows us to see what's in other par parties. And for SOCOM, we have multiple uh, groups that are theater special operation commands and components that are in SOCOM. And we have folks that have purchased data multiple times, simply because we haven't been able to visualize where all of our data is. And we've also run into situations where we have multiple data sharing agreements for the same data from a single agency. 
you know, which is not something that we should necessarily have to do if we're trying to be an efficient and agile organization. And then finally, one of the struggles that we have as well is really the provenance of the data and the security of that data. Having to go through long predicated processes that say, well, if you're going to copy the data from location A to location B, here are all of the security paradigms that we want you to really adhere to because we don't have a good ICAM identity management system across the DOD that's easy to say, yes, this group over here has access to this particular data. So unpacking a lot of that, the data sharing agreements really need to evolve. One, we don't need to copy data to another location. Two, we need to be able to visualize the data that we have and we are already sharing so that we can maximize efficiency of scale. And third is we've really got to recognize the ability for us to securely get access to that data back and forth without having all kinds of crazy hoops to jump through from a security perspective. Today it's required, but tomorrow the vision should not be that it takes a year to do a data sharing agreement. Tomorrow the vision should be that it takes seven days to do a data sharing agreement or seven minutes to do a data sharing agreement. Well, thank you. Um, Dan, do you, do you have any other perspective that you'd like to share about your agency going through strengthening of sharing data methodologies? Well, a lot of what we are, we're benefiting from choices that were made pre-pandemic to move to more advanced data visualization platforms. Um, not everything has come to full fruition yet, and um, but that's, that's okay. We did get a number of balls rolling that have allowed us to, to share in, 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 in new and positive ways. We are also building on older, older data sharing uh, architectures that have served us well for many years, but we're ready to move on and to take things to the next level. And that's one of the other things that we've discovered is that we've got very good homegrown solutions that were excellent, that served us well for many years. And yet what's happening in private industry and what's happening with technology is, is outpacing what we've been able to do homegrown. And so making smart investments into platforms that can evolve over time with us is really, really important. And the cloud plays a, 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 an essential role in that level of evolution. Excellent, thank you. Any other panelists wanna to contribute to that one? I would just echo what Tom was saying. It's, uh, he's spot on. Um, and especially from data sharing, having good uh, ubiquitous language or lingua franca or whatever you want to call it that's manifested in data dictionaries and referential data is very critical and will avoid all the babblefish that typically get created uh, technically in, in having these sort of sharing of information and um, the, conversa the technical conversations that actually happen. Um, that's, I think, really putting a good focus on, on that and the, the governance around it is, is, would be extremely beneficial, will pay dividends if, if curated properly down the road. Great. Such great insight. Thank you. George, would you say something? To highlight that too. So um, similar to what Tom said was the USDA has a, a chief data officer now. Um, and one of the things we've done is, is have assistant chief data officers within each of our major mission areas. Um, and this is this has helped from the aspect that we now have a uniform set of people to collaborate together and understand the different data needs um, across across all their different current platforms that they have. Um, so that as we look at sharing that data across USDA and, and across the government, um, maybe we don't need to centralize all that data. Maybe we just need a centralized 
data catalog um, type where we have the metadata about the data sets, but we don't actually have to centralize all the data in one place is maybe it's not the right fit. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so we have an audience question. Mr. Puckett, what do you see as the most important aspect of data management as it relates to DevSecOps to get the Army to the cloud? Ooh, um, I actually like this question because it builds off of just the comment that was just made uh, building on uh, with Tom and George and, and Robert just saying, um, uh, I wanna make sure I, I tease this one out real, real fast. DevSecOps is not a technology discussion. Uh, DevSecOps is much bigger than that. It's a cultural uh, thing. It's uh, understanding developers, uh, cybersecurity specialists, people who run operations, uh, converging their incentives towards whatever the mission objective you're trying to achieve is and doing that quickly. Um, so you know, everyone plays a role in, in getting a, a good idea into production in the world of, of DevSecOps. And so if we think about what DevSecOps is also incentivizing, which is uh, the feedback loop from the field, right? If I can give capability faster, then I can get feedback faster. If I streamline my processes uh, to get new capability fielded as well, then I've got this beautiful feedback loop. If you think about our ability to learn from data and then act upon data, right, is having the, be able to be, the ability to be able to discover data, use data, learn from it, and then act upon how we're learning. So I would overlay the DevSecOps question and the data management question to be a discoverability question. I, I would probably focus more so on discoverability. It gets back to like the metadata catalog. And say we have a team that's trying to build an application. Uh, they got feedback from a customer and I need to be able to go and do this thing. They need to know what data sets are available at their hands that they can incorporate into the application or the service that they're trying to build. And if they can't even find those data sets in the first place, that becomes a who you know discussion or they're gonna recreate it from scratch or they're gonna create a monolith application where uh, the person that's actually needing the data is having some manual you know, creation of that data when we could just be making a real-time data call. And in order to get that integration in place, we have to know the data is available. We have to know that the way that it's being stored and it's being hosted can actually support my real-time data calls. Um, so I can give good authoritative data to the people that need to make decisions leveraging my new application. And so I think first and foremost, uh, I think discoverability is kind of the first step. There's so much more that goes into, for instance, now if I've got service calls, how do I ensure that the people asking for the data actually have the access rights to get access to the data, it gets to the ICAM discussion. There's all these different downstream effects, but I think discoverability is a key component to be able to act quickly in the world of DevSecOps. Excellent, thank you. Great question, great answer. Um, so shifting a little bit, I want to direct a question towards Steve. Steve, Cohesity frequently uses the term mass data fragmentation. What impact is this having on the federal IT ecosystem? Sure, uh, yeah, so mass data fragmentation really is kind of the umbrella problem statement that <clears throat> we, we talk a lot about. Really, it's the problem's threefold, right? I mean, we're talking about some of these themes today about data sprawl, data proliferation, um, as we think about the cloud, as we think about on-prem MSPs, tactical edge, uh, the, you know, we don't necessarily have a unified uh, architecture or a unified approach to managing those data assets. So often what we find is every time there's a new service, new workload, new application being stood up in these environments, there's typically a new data stovepipe. Um, it's also, uh, you know, inefficient because we see a lot of series of, of point technologies, right? So a point versus platform approach to data management. 
um, every time we, we see different uh, data across these environments, you have a lot of point technologies. Um, finally, you know, mass data fragmentation is about the piecemeal approach to data versus having global insights into data. So, you know, it, as you have data spread across these environments, to really gain uh, global insights into the data, unless you have that holistic view, uh, if the data is dark or not not available in that fashion, uh, it's 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 fragmented. So, um, in a nutshell, those kind of contributing factors or root causes are what what makes up this mass data fragmentation problem. And as we have touched on some of the issues around data du uh, duplication, uh, the inefficiencies there, um, discoverability, uh, you know, cataloging, visibility, right? It's it's I think it all comes back again to the data. So um, as you look across this kind of federal ecosystem of of uh, you know options and, and availability of, of uh, these these service approaches, um, I, I think the way to solve that mass data fragmentation problem is while you're, you're not going to get complete architectural consistency across the CSPs and all, in, inside the data centers. What is the best way to really manage that data layer? Right, everything from you know we talked about um, metadata, we talked about deduplication, uh, space efficiency. So. We, it's, a, it's a big problem and we see it everywhere. And, and quite frankly, large departments and agencies aren't a net new operation, right? So they have a series of technical, um, you know, uh, debt and technical uh, legacy assets they're up against. And they're trying to, you know, shift the, um, shift the environment to some of these next gen approaches. And often it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of, the, we find this mass data fragmentation problem across that entire continuum. Great, thank you. Great insight. Okay, so we are going to uh, knock out our third and final poll question for today. So Alyssa, if you could please put that up for our audience and our panelists. I'll go ahead and read it because I know what it's gonna say. <laughs> How do you feel that your agency did accepting and adapting to the new normal of teleworking? And your options are great. We are still working on it. We have started to adapt, but still figuring it out, or we are not adapting, which would be very unfortunate. So please go ahead and answer how you feel your agency has adapted to this new normal of teleworking. And then Alyssa, when you feel like we have had enough responses, we can go ahead and show those results and then we can talk about them. Okay, so looks like people are feeling pretty confident at this point, which is excellent. Um, and the question that I have, and let's start with George this time. What does this new normal of teleworking necessitated by the pandemic look like at your agency? Yeah, so we, we, we still have uh, nearly 100% of our staff teleworking full time. Um, we really only have a small portion of facilities engineers and, and service desk staff uh, just to make sure the lights stay on at the data center. Um, we've seen we, we've seen staff adapt, I'd say, really well, um, and and part of that is due to really just the swath of collaboration tools that we have out there um, at our fingertips now. Um, we use things like Teams and Zoom um, as our as our default um, methodology of kind of collaboration and, and sharing information. Um, even at a point where if, if somebody calls my cell phone now instead of calling me on Teams, uh, I'm surprised. Um, but that, that also enables interesting things as we become reliant on collaboration platforms, the, the features of those collaboration platforms start to become um, more valuable to us. Uh, one of the things one of the other panelists was talking about was the different ways that we can do like source control sharing. Um, 
integration with things like Git and Teams uh, really enables a new level of, of collaboration and um, not having to rely on, you know, maybe a source file being emailed to somebody else or, or shared um, a different way where you can just be notified as things happen um, and you become more responsive um, even though you're at home instead of somebody having to walk over and, and bug you about it. Um, so it's been interesting. I think we'll we'll probably see USDA policy or federal government policy as a whole um, adapt due to the pandemic pandemic changes that we've we've experienced. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you, um, Rob. Would you like to answer that one as well? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so we've. Um, We've actually gone through probably the litany of different teleworking uh, remote collaboration tools uh, over here. Uh, you name it, we've probably used it, bought it, whatever. Um, we've also been fortunate enough that our uh, this uh, this agency did telework <clears throat> and has embraced it for a long time. So we feel like we had a head start on a lot of folks. Um, but again, from a technology perspective as well, I think we've... We're now really trying to uh, leverage key design type platforms and take it to other levels rather than just for UX or for UMLs and uh, sort of the technical bits. We actually are now looking at leveraging some of these tool sets um, for contracting and for HR um, and some other uh, business mission uh, focused uh, divisions, um, again, just to enhance what they're doing. Um, and we've really ramped up um, on just pure digitization. Um, as you can well imagine, uh, you know, from a USAS perspective in immigration, it's, there's, there's still a lot of paper. We still accept a lot of paper. So we have to digitize all that. And from a COVID perspective, uh, you can well imagine that uh, we've got a lot of folks out in the field that uh, are really not in the field anymore, they're at home. And instead of lugging around essentially hand trucks filled with paper they put in the back of their trunk, we now have to deliver that to their laptop. So we've made some interesting technology advances in that front, now from just the digitization of the paper to the actual delivery. And Dan, I'd like to hear from you about GSA because I know you guys were probably one of those agencies that was ahead of it as well. Well, you know, it, it really helped that we have a, we had a 99% telework agreement workforce before the pandemic. It's, I'm sure it's almost perfectly a hundred now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, employees were equipped with mobile uh, devices with hotspots and laptops before every, anyone thought this pandemic would be real. Thanks to Steve, of course, who's on the call, who's working in our uh, CIO shop, who made all that possible. Um, so that helped a lot. It allowed GSA to be the first agency in Washington, D.C. to evacuate last March. Here we are a year later. It will be a year in, a, in about a week or so. Um, that uh, enabled us. We only had one dress rehearsal several days before that evacuation where we could test out the VPN to make sure, you know, we could make uh, adjustments there to ensure that we had the capacity that, that a, a fully teleworked agency um, could do, but still we had, we, there were still bumps in the road. Um, like I'd mentioned interagency collaboration before. 
even though we had done a lot to be ahead of the curve, it was still on us. Our mission is to help every other agency, whether that's through buildings or through contracts or through other, through policy support, which is my shop. We were able to provide um, cloud training to over a thousand federal employees on infrastructure and security on cloud during the pandemic. Um, and in some ways the pandemic really accelerated that part of our mission. Um, because the distributed nature of, of, of the posture really lent itself to, to certain activities. Um, so uh, we were happy to, to not have the same challenges that other agencies had at the same time. It's on us to make sure that other agencies are being successful. Your mission is our mission um, and, and that matters. So. Thank you. Yeah, almost a year. That's crazy. I miss coffee and chachis at those in-person conferences, believe it or not. Um, so I'd also like to hear from the rest of the panelists about their experience. So how about Tom next? The, the interesting aspect for me about mobile work and telework is uh, coming to the government recently. Uh, my second startup that I did years ago, we actually did fully remote with a distributed workforce in 2002 to 2005. And I ended up actually the CEO founder and I was the CTO founder. We didn't actually meet each other in person live until 2007, before Zoom, before Skype, before everything else. So I am, I am a fabulous, true believer in the benefits of remote work. I do think though, generally speaking, the government is at very different levels in different agencies of their embrace of telework. And part of that I think is the, the understanding that sometimes what you know is what you're most comfortable with and what you don't know makes you very uncomfortable. And a lot of managers in the civilian world and in the government, so that it isn't confined just to the government, are not always comfortable managing people they don't see every day. You know, being able to sit down and have a meeting with them. I think you know, Dan's a great example of, a, of an organization that was thinking well forward of something like a COVID pandemic, where they were looking at that as a workforce enablement tool, not necessarily as a perk and not necessarily as, oh, well, we gotta do it now because it's COVID. Um, and, and for Steve, you know, having that foresight to think about why this is important for us is really, really key. As we look to move our organization forward, especially in my team, you know, that's doing all the, the data and the AI sort of stuff to bring the command to a really exciting level, we're really pushing an envelope saying, we don't care where you are, we don't care what geography you're located in, we want to be able to hire you if you want to work with us. You know, and we're talking to folks in Idaho, in Utah, in West Virginia, in Massachusetts, in California for SOCOM, which is historically based inside of Tampa. So as we continue to grow as an organization, I know that this is gonna to continue to be one of those things that we want to mature at doing. You know, the education to the workforce internally, the embracing of remote work externally, I think is it's a force multiplier for us because now it doesn't matter where your butt's in the seat, it matters what's the work that you're actually doing. And you're driving to outcome-driven innovation rather than to a timesheet. I'd love to add on to this one. DevCom just put out their kind of future of the workforce um, uh, for everyone to go and consume. And, and it's precisely the same thing that Tom said. You know, our ability to be able to tap into awesome, talented people can't be confined to the specific geographic location in which, you know, your, your biggest building is. 
Um, just even today, I was talking about for hiring into the ECMO is, you know, does that person need to be in the national capital region? No. Um, but there's some cultural things that have to change with that. Like actually changing all of the paperwork for each one of the positions that I have that says this can be remote anywhere makes people's eyes go like, what? Like, what are you doing? Um, and the other challenge that, that I think we, we all saw with COVID and, and Tom's right, you know, the mission is kind of a little different for everyone. And that kind of dictates your, your telework presence. For instance, um, I used to work in the intelligence community. Uh, and I know even my friends right now, a lot of them go in. Why? Because it comes down to the sensitivity of the data. It's not really something that you can just kind of do from anywhere. Um, and it's back to knowing and understanding your mission and the data that kind of dictates a little bit of that telework presence. Um, and so that's very much different for, for a whole bunch of different agencies. Um, so where, where you have the opportunity, I think you need to tap into that flexibility. But I'm, I'm intrigued to see how the culture truly adapts and changes. And I think I think COVID just ha helped some seniors realize just how um, closed off we actually are to the communities that we need to interact with when it comes to our mission uh, and how perhaps hard we make it for, you know, our industry partners or friends, people in the, the private communities, uh, how to work with the government. And I, and I hope that that really permeates. And I think that's uh, represented in, in DevCom putting out that future of the workforce as they see the opportunity and the value and they want to lean into it. Army senior leaders have leaned into it as well. My office, you can be entirely remote if you want, um, but back to the culture and the trust piece, I know of some organizations that has their people fill out, what have you done for every single minute of every single day while you're working at home? Um, and if you don't have the metrics that, that kind of get to, are we delivering our, on our objectives and you don't have um, uh, people that uh, you trust to do the right thing for your mission, uh, you can kill the opportunity of uh, remote work from anywhere with uh, really bad, you know, management oversight that uh, that will kill a culture uh, faster than uh, than you can uh, uh, hope to change it. Definitely, um, Steve. Do you want to wrap us up with this one? How has or how does the new normal of teleworking by the pandemic look like at your organization? Yeah, so, so for us, you know, being a private sector organization, it's been, we've been fully ready. Uh, we've fully embraced it. Um, as Dan knows, GSA certainly, what I would say, is a bit more forward-leaning, even historically speaking. Uh, so, you know, we've, uh, we've fully embraced it. Uh, but I, I echo uh, the, the points that were made. It's all about the culture. Um, there, of course, there's a technology readiness component. There's a cybersecurity component to ensure uh, you have the right tooling and visibility and what have you. But Assuming those, assuming those capabilities are in place, I think uh, generally, you know, for us, it's been great. We haven't missed, uh, you know, uh, a hiccup. There's been no hiccups and we've had complete continuity uh, across the board. But I do think it's about culture. It's about accountability controls. Uh, missions can vary. Uh, and as Tom and Paul said, I think uh, different organizations inside government are at a different place. Uh, but I do think that COVID and the pandemic is going to accelerate, has accelerated. And uh, while there's been a lot of talk over the last two decades about IT not being a cost center, being a true mission business uh, partner enabler, I think this pandemic has demonstrated and put into perspective how critical technology is in relation to mission delivery, not only support functions and commodity infrastructure, uh, but really more on the mission side. So I, uh, I think, you know, while it's been unfortunate, I do think there have been some benefits that will help uh, us uh, grow and get better as government. 
Excellent, thank you. So we have a question from uh, Gail Azaroff, our board member. Hi, Gail. Um, she wants to know, how are you developing the required AI, ML, and data analytics skills of your workforce? And I know that this is a huge topic within our workforce transformation um, team here at HR. So Tom, do you think you could kick us off with that one? Sure. One of the things that we recognize at SOCOM is that importance of that mindset, skill set, and tool set. The mindset's really, really big. So we're actually partnering with academia to bring that type of skill set to the workforce to start in that first step process. So we work with both Carnegie Mellon University and with MIT, and we've developed two courses, one that's called AI for Executives, which is from Carnegie Mellon. That actually went out to over 400 leaders inside of SOCOM to help them understand this is artificial intelligence. This is data management. This is why it's important. This is how we're going to leverage cloud technologies and tactical edge capabilities for AI, ML, and analytics. And the one that we're just releasing now that's gonna start up in April is gonna be really from MIT focused on, all right, now what are some of the nuts and bolts? Now, this is some of the admin officer level or some of the, the folks that are just AI inquisitive to really understand how they're going to get after this problem. And then the third leg of the stool that we have is a lot of great engagement that we have with our Joint Special Operations University that's led by Dr. Ike Wilson and how we are intersecting with the AI education and capabilities of the Joint AI Center. You know, how we as a DOD holistically need to be able to educate the force. And we're educating at the senior level so they understand why it's important at the mid-tier level so they understand how to manage some of these initiatives and then at the the entry level of folks that are just curious you know think of all of the hundreds of thousands of digitally natively curious people that we have in the dod all we need to do are give them some tools and some opportunities and we're gonna be amazed at what the workforce is gonna be able to do for us. So we're very, very proactively moving out with academia to build these capabilities and then share them across the force to really build our competencies. Oh, super cool stuff. Do any of the other panelists wanna tackle that one before we move on, Rob? Happy to. Um, I think this, this is the most important and even with cloud as well, I mean, any of these sort of skills, having these skills is so hard to get. And you, all of the panelists have made great reference to, especially with the, the teleworking and the ability to have a remote workforce to tap into so many other skill, uh, skilled folks to, to join as opposed to being isolated to the end advantage. But the skills are still, it's very difficult to, to recruit and retain those skills. Um, so again, with as well, you know, we've got a, we have a younger workforce that is, that is coming in. Their skill sets are, are totally different than mine and I'm sure most of the other panelists. Sorry, guys. Um, and the fact that they're really born with the technology and understand it so much better than, than a lot of folks already do. So I think another great area, not just training, but is again, opening up the aperture um, and again, more citizen development or uh, just again, uh, free for all. I wouldn't say free for all, it's a bad way to say it, but really opening it up with, so that it, it's very easy to, to do what you need to do um, in various manifestations um, through UIs or through um, bots that you can uh, build in a UI to, again, just um, pulling in a, in a graphical manner information from here to there. So. Um, 
those are those are some key areas that we're again really trying to focus on so we can really enable the workforce to not have multiple contracts uh, that uh, may may end up going to Excellent. Thank Just you. quickly on AI, uh, the General Services Administration, our technology transformation service manages a government-wide artificial intelligence community of practice, and any Fed can can participate. That can be found on digital.gov. Follow the follow the community's link. It'll take you to the AI community of practice. Perfect. Sounds good. Hey, Thank you. Kirsten, if I can just add one more, uh, I think Rob, you said at the start about data democratization um, is uh, one of the choke points and gateways is skill sets, right? Another choke point and gateway is the actual tools needed uh, to make sense of data. So both need to be put into the hands uh, of everyone within uh, your agency if you want to truly empower them and truly democratize, de-democratize or democratize data. Um, and uh, that's precisely you know, why we've got the data strategy we do. That's precisely why Tom talked about Dr. Markowitz, our chief data officer, uh, driving after not just being able to discover data, but also have access to the tools uh, to analyze data, and then also to uh, empower our soldiers and civilians with the skill sets uh, to be uh, stewards of that data. Excellent, thank you. So moving on to another audience question. Um, this is a good one. It could have almost been a poll, but Drew asks, between DevSecOps, data management and collaboration, cloud and infrastructure management and security, is there a priority focus among these selections that your agency is focused on? Um, who from our panel would like to tackle that one first? George? Sure. That, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, and they're, they're intermingled a lot. Um, I think Paul put it really well earlier that, that DevOps is, is a mindset um, and really a, a way of managing your organization. And an output of that can be security and cloud infrastructure management with tools like Terraform or, or Ansible or Puppet. Um, when you really embrace infrastructure as code and, and these different tool sets, security is an output of that. Um, as your, your code now can be your actual, say, security governance documentation. Um, but, it, but it takes the organization fully buying into that, not just some engineering staff. When you, when you then manage infrastructure um, or, or really your platforms um, in that mindset, that can then enable uh, the data management and collaboration piece to, to really be a layer on top of any cloud um, or, or any sort of platform. Um, and when you, when you use these tools um, to really create like a common baseline across your different services so that everybody knows what the default baseline is, it, it really enables the data management tools to, to lay on top of that no matter where they are. Um, it's a hard thing to do, though. It really is. Um, and it, it takes buy-in from, from really every different level to get there. So I, I know that was kind of a non-answer to your question, but um, security is always our primary focus. That's, that's first and foremost. Uh, but you can solve security, or maybe not completely solve, but you can, you can address security and then a lot of these other um, challenges with, you could say, the DevOps mindset. Um, but for us, at the infrastructure level, infrastructure management with code, that's a big piece. And then we have a really large group for, for data management um, 
with our, our chief data officer um, pushing that down into all the agencies. Thanks. Thank you. All right, well, we are almost at time, but I wanna do a quick round of rapid fire, 30 second takeaways that you wanna leave your audience with, um, whether it be about the technology or culture, um, just anything that you know you took away from this discussion and what you wanna leave the attendees with. So let's go around and Tom, can you start us off? None of this happens in isolation. Right, whether how you're adapting your workforce, building out your infrastructure, changing your mindsets, building your data collaboration, all of this is a package deal. It's not individual silos anymore. It's all a bigger picture that we've got to keep our eyes on. Perfect. Paul, over to you. I'm going to double down on that. It's that last question is the wrong way to think about it, right? It, what is a mission objective uh, that you can deliver value in for your agency? and pull the right culture, the right people to demonstrate uh, how developer security uh, and operators working together, leveraging modern cloud computing technology and getting access to good data can deliver value on that mission. It, it all just starts small, delivering the outcome uh, and expand the, the various skill sets and ecosystems uh, that are enablers to your mission. Thank you, Dan. Um, you know, migrating legacy apps to the cloud, it's an expensive and uh, time-consuming consuming and risky prospect. In a lot of ways, we, we largely advocate starting new with a SaaS project. Um, you start from scratch. Sometimes you can get where you're going faster, cheaper than trying to bring something that's old and busted into the future. Excellent. Steve? Yeah, as you, as you kind of, you know, perform that holistic assessment, you think about people, human capital, process, technology, um, I would say, you know, uh, continue to focus on data um, as a priority and uh, the experience, the end experience that you're trying to uh, solve for. Thank you, Rob. Uh, it's all about the data and then the people. <laughs> and George. Yeah, really just to, to highlight what, what Tom and Paul and, and everybody has been saying is, um, just look at look at how you can collaborate within your organization and, and be open to new mindsets and new new methodologies, um, as as that is the the route forward um, for for us as a federal government to succeed, but also each of us individually as as a technologist. Excellent. Thank you, guys. This has been such a delight. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today. And I want to thank you again to our partners at Cohesity and our awesome panelists. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining us. We hope to see you again next week for ATARC's After Lunch webinar series, this time on Tuesday. Here we will be talking with federal cybersecurity experts who will share their experiences, challenges, and successes with the tools and processes that they are using within their teams currently to achieve and improve cybersecurity compliance. Panelists will address how they intend to manage the risks of sensitive data exposure through improved cyber compliance. So another exciting panel to look forward to. Um, really appreciate it, you guys. This has been awesome, and I hope everyone has a great rest of their week. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you.